I had a Jesus experience, which is the last thing I was expecting, and frankly, the last thing I wanted. But there it was, I had a waking vision of Jesus. He was very Jewish looking. He wasn't like any of the pictures I'd ever seen before. No blue eyes or blonde hair, you know, he was, he was a brown, dark skin, curly, thick, dark hair. And he just looked at me, Billy. He had such love in his eyes, in his countenance and, and humor and connection. And I felt like he was saying, hey, I, I understand you. I, I get you I, and I love you. Well, this was really shocking for a nice Jewish girl like me. <laughs> what was Jesus coming and talking to me about this stuff for? I, I wasn't looking for him. He wasn't on my radar screen. From Religion News Service, this is Beliefs. I'm Bill Baker. Author and minister Rebecca Simon-Peter presents a bold vision for houses of worship seeking to embody the heroic spirit of Jesus. Her ambitious model for deepening the spiritual engagement of entire congregations has produced her recent book, Dream Like Jesus. I spoke with Reverend Simon Peter to explore her roadmap for enthusiastic and heartfelt engagement with faith. Rebecca Simon Peter wrote a very interesting book called Dream Like Jesus. She's a United Methodist minister and is trying to help move the needle forward. Rebecca, welcome to the Beliefs Podcast. Thank you so much, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, tell me about your book. It's it's really pretty easy to get into, and it's very specific. Why did you write it, and what is it about exactly? Well, what I've noticed, Bill, is that in the United Methodist Church and in the church as a whole, we have such a treasury of wisdom that we don't tap into. Um, the church right now is in decline. We know that the numbers are falling in terms of those that have been very involved in the church. There's a greater number of nuns than we've ever had, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S, uh, people that have fallen away or claim no particular religion. And my thesis is that what's been missing all along is a Jesus-like dream, that Jesus had a big dream for the world, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, from the Lord's Prayer, his vision of the kingdom, uh, that earth would somehow be a reflection of heaven, and that we've, we've really stopped dreaming like Jesus. We don't have those big dreams anymore. When the church is in the, on the downside, it's in survival mode, and I think it's a self-reinforcing pattern, but the main issue is that we have stopped dreaming big dreams that really make a difference in the world. What caused the church, not only the United Methodist Church, but really all churches and, uh, and all religions, to start losing followers? God, it's such an interesting question, and so many people have written about it. I do think that loss of vision is at the heart of it, that we have gone into reaction mode uh, instead of being in the proactive mode. I mean, even King talked about it, that the church is supposed to be the headlights, but instead is the taillights. And I think we've gotten uh, <laughs> calcified in our approach to things, that it's become more about institutional integrity instead of spiritual awakening and spiritual relationship with the divine, with the ineffable. So what are the symptoms of a church without a vision, 
a church in decline? I am so glad you asked that question because it's become really apparent to me. One thing I should mention uh, to your listeners is that I lead a program called Creating a Culture of Renewal, and it's a three-year process that is designed to empower church leaders. And so in the process of working with church leaders all over the country, I've seen a, a recurring pattern in churches that do not have a vision. And I've seen, in fact, eight symptoms that happen again and again and again and again. And so these symptoms include things like um, shrinking numbers. And it's not just um, the budget that shrinks, it's the number of people that participate. Uh, We see an increase in problem people. Um, The problem people are, can be defined as both those that won't do anything, and those that try to do everything and take over. Stagnant giving is another one of the symptoms. The existence of the church itself becomes the focus of the giving, and instead of giving towards something larger than itself, a vision, a ministry, an outreach, it's just about survival. And so giving becomes stagnant because the vision is stagnant. And the fourth symptom I've seen is listless worship, where it just sort of meanders. It doesn't really go anywhere. It's more like checking the box than it is really having a robust interaction with the divine or a space in which people can connect with their soul or with the spirit of themselves or even the spirit of the community. And that's also exemplified in symptom number five, which is gutless prayer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jesus says over and over, look, people, whatever you want, two or three are gathered, ask for whatever you want. I'm going to fulfill the desires of your heart. And so often churches say, well, gosh, we'd like to have more young people. But the prayers don't really reflect that. Um, In fact, I I hear three kinds of prayers on autopilot over and over, which is um, personal safety and well-being, travel, and the military. And I mean, in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with that. But it's as if the kingdom mentality has shrunk down to, I hope I'm okay, I hope my people are okay, and I hope the military protects us. Um, And number, the other thing to say is as if the military is the only significant symbol of our civic life together. So I think there's some, I think there's some theological problems with that kind of prayer. Um, passing for kingdom prayer in church. Now, you, you wrote this book as a United Methodist minister. Is it principally for United Methodists? Is it for only Christians? Because all churches, temples are uh, kind of in in uh, the reduction mode these days. Yeah, it's a great question. It's actually, I am United Methodist clergy, but the book is not just for United Methodists. It's really for mainline churches and leaders. Now, can it go beyond that? Absolutely. In fact, I've had a number of friends who consider themselves to be spiritual but not religious, and friends that are Jewish that have read the book, and they resonate with it. And I think what they're resonating with is this idea that we can tap into vision. We can actually tap into the divine impulse within us and be bigger than we are and 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 envision something better for ourselves, that we don't just have to uh, go with the status quo, but we can actually invent our futures. And so in that way, it's for everybody. It really is. One of the things that you talk about, actually almost in every chapter, is kind of the culture of the church. Now, I thought that was very interesting because I I believe that's probably very true, but can you define that, talk about that a little bit more, and uh, say where that comes from? 
Yeah, yeah, that you've you've hit on what I call the culture of the congregation, and really can apply to any organization. But the culture, simply put, is the way we do things. And churches are famous for, hey, you know, we've never done that around here. And th those are words uh, that can become fighting words when a new mm -hmm. pastor is sent in, wants to make changes. Now, of course, this can go with rabbis and and congregations, and I, I don't know exactly how um, Muslim congregations work, but I imagine any place there's an organization um, and there's a leader that this applies. So I have identified four different cultural archetypes that operate within a congregation or a organization, and there's the get her done type, and that's uh, result-oriented and let's just get things done, not always as concerned with feelings, more concerned with taking action and accomplishing a certain result. So there's the get her done, there's the get her done with fun. Hey, as long as we're gonna get it done, let's have some fun. And those are the people that add levity, uh, they're idea generators, they add a spark of interest, they're comfortable interacting with strangers and, and unknown folks, they're, they're very welcoming, open-spirited. Um, there are the get her done by consensus uh, types. And those are the folks that really do like to operate in a space of harmony where no one's upset, no one's left out, and everybody agrees. Um, there's a drawback for each of the cultures. The drawback on this particular one is that sometimes you have to take risks, especially for congregations and especially if they're going to dream like Jesus. And if everybody has to agree, geez, Jesus wouldn't have had a chance. <laughs> Not everybody agreed with him. And then the fourth kind of culture that I identify is the get her done right the first time. And those folks are very conscientious and they can be cautious because they don't want to make a mistake. They want to get it right. They want to have good use of resources, um, sometimes overly cautious. And when a church is operating from the get her done by consensus or the get her done right the first time, and those are the only dynamics at play, that can stifle uh, the movement of a congregation because there isn't necessarily a willingness to take a risk. And if you're going to dream like Jesus, if you're going to be bold, if you're going to be visionary, you've got to take a risk. You've got to be willing to try stuff that actually has a really good chance of failing. I think that's a very good point, and I think often we forget about that, especially in you know not-for-profit churches where the where there's almost no money, and everybody seems to be afraid to take a chance. Well, there may not be a church next week if you don't take a chance today. That's it exactly, and that just kills me when churches are unwilling to take a chance when the institution itself becomes more important than the faith we say we believe in. So that happens in all institutions, but it's deadly for a church because you're right. That church probably is not going to be around next week, next year, um, you know, next decade. Who are these nuns, uh, the <laughs> non-believers, but they're often spiritual, etc.? Yeah. They're the uh, yeah. millennials that everybody is saying are, aren't going to church. Can you describe them a little bit and how they got to be where they are, which is nowhere? It's not just millennials. My folks are nuns. My folks are nuns. They're 83, almost 84. Uh, I was born and raised uh, in an interfaith home, Jewish mom, Catholic dad. My dad had left the church 
uh, at 18 when he married my mom or 21. Uh, my mom, you know, was Jewish her whole life, and I and I and I think she still identifies as Jewish. But in terms of attending worship services or praying, mm-mm. they have identified an inner set of values by which they live and believe in, instead of external reference for their faith journey. My dad would call himself spiritual, uh, but not religious, and their values include uh, fidelity, honesty, love, generosity authenticity. You can't call that those folks non-spiritual or nothing. That's everything. But instead of identifying the source of their values outside of themselves, they've identified them inside. Now, my folks are, what generation would that be? They're like the pioneer generation. Um, I know many people from 84 on down that are beginning to identify the source of their spirituality within as opposed to without. So I think there's actually a great deal for the church to learn from the spiritual but not religious and from those who may identify as none. A lot of times the nuns started off in church, but they got turned off. They got turned away. Maybe they were gay or lesbian and were part of a church that didn't believe in that. Alternatively, they could be people who hold very traditional biblical values, but find that the church has strayed from that. So I think you can have people on all ends. But I participate in recovery circles, recovery from addiction. And a lot of the folks in those rooms are people that have grown disenchanted with church. They were raised in church, but that they found there was a certain disconnect from the actual issues they were dealing with, alcoholism, drug addiction, food addiction, whatever the addictive process might have been. Those questions weren't getting answered for them. The deepest questions of who am I? Am I okay as I am? Uh, They felt that there were hoops that they had to jump through in order to receive God's love or be good enough. Now, I'm not saying that that's who God actually is or that's what those religions actually teach, but that's the message somehow that got transmitted to them. So I appreciate the nuns because I think they have the ability to really keep the church honest, looking at itself, growing, instead of maybe insulated or smug or self-righteous. I've heard it in churches, you have too, I'm sure, where people say, gosh, I don't know how people live without church, (laughs) you know, or how do they do without us, basically? Well, (laughs) sometimes the people in church are, 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 are insular. They're closed off to new people, new ideas. They're friendly amongst themselves. They're warm amongst themselves, but not necessarily to newcomers or people who look different or sound different or, or believe differently. Well, you're very, very correct. And as a matter of fact, the way you're describing it may very well be the case that in some ways, this group of nuns, in different ways, nuns, are um, more religious than sometimes the people in church who are smug about being religious. Uh, But the others may go deeper. Your parents are a good example. Your parents are a good example. Let's talk about um, where you came from, because it's not an exactly traditional place to come from to be a United Methodist minister. Your mother, Jewish, your father, you said Catholic. How did you wind up where you are? Well, that's a good question, one I often wonder about. Uh, well, raised in the home I was raised in, my parents uh, had wrestled with how to raise us kids. First, they were going to raise us all Catholic, and so my mom started going uh, to 
classes, RCIA, I think they call it, um, yes. for people are going to convert. But then at some point she realized my dad wasn't even going to church anymore. And she said, Joe, I am not going to convert and raise these kids Catholic if you're not even going to church. So mm-hmm. they went the other way. And my dad, while he never converted to Judaism, it was extremely supportive of our being raised Jewish. And so we all were bar mitzvahed and bat mitzvahed, five kids, uh, confirmation class, trips to Israel, uh, Friday night Shabbat dinners. And I always get with my dad. He had pretty good pretend Hebrew. I mean, he could do the blessings pretty well. So I grew up with this deep, deep love of Judaism and a deep appreciation for it. On my mom's side of the family, all Jewish. Uh, in fact, uh, editors and publishers of the Intermountain Jewish News, an award-winning newspaper out of Denver, uh, is the family endeavor. And on my dad's side of the family, uh, Catholic Polish and Italian background. And so I sort of grew up with everything. In fact, I have a part in the book where I called, which I call celebrate everything. That's what I grew up with. We had, we had Christmas trees at Christmas and we had ham on Easter and we had matzah at Passover and we opened the door for Elijah. We sort of did it all, but I always knew I was Jewish. And in fact, I was raised reform in reform Judaism. I later had a God experiences on one of those trips to Israel, one of those trips to Israel when I graduated college. My Jewish grandma took me on, and it was a wonderful trip. It started off as two weeks. I begged to stay another two, so it was a four-week trip. And while I was there, I had a profound spiritual experience with God. I felt like God woke me up in the middle of the night, knocked me upside the head, and I just sort of came to there. There is a God, and I've been living my life all wrong. So, you know, I'd done the whole Jewish thing, uh, you know, confirmation class, and like a lot of kids, I graduated, you know, somewhere in middle middle of high school, and I went off to sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and uh, the kind of the secular teen experience. And then when I was 24 or so, had this this spiritual awakening and wound up reconnecting with my Judaism, but not where I left off, not with Reform Judaism, but in Orthodox Judaism, because the Jewish family I was staying with, my aunt and uncle and cousins, were Orthodox. And so I was having this firsthand experience of the beauty of the tradition and the depth of the learning and the the, the piety and the devotion. I, I, I loved it. My soul was really in love with it. And I, I went back to Vermont where I was living. I took all my dishes. I koshered them in the Winooski River, which think baptism for your dishes. And so they would all be considered kosher. And I began to live the Orthodox Jewish life. I went to work for my grandmother at the Intermountain Jewish News. And then a couple of years into that, I had a Jesus experience, which is the last thing I was expecting. And frankly, the last thing I wanted but there it was. I had a waking vision of Jesus. He was very Jewish looking. He wasn't like any of the pictures I'd ever seen before. No blue eyes or blonde hair. You know, he was, he was uh, brown, dark skin, curly, thick, dark hair. And he just looked at me, Bill. He had such love in his eyes, in his countenance, and, and humor, and connection. And I felt like he was saying, hey, I, I understand you. I, I get you, I, and I love you. Well, this was really shocking for a nice Jewish girl like me. <laughs> what was Jesus coming and talking to me about this stuff for? I, I wasn't looking for him. He wasn't on my radar screen. And when I went back uh, to a friend of mine who was my spiritual mentor in the recovery circles that I traveled in, I told her about the experience. And she said, well, 
you know Jesus was a Jew. I was like, yeah, everybody knows that. She said, well, did you know the disciples were Jewish? And I was like, what's a disciple? She said, oh, you haven't read the New Testament. And I thought, nope, it's not my book. She said, I'm going to get you a copy. I thought, well, I'm not reading it. And she got me the copy, and I didn't read it. But she was in seminary, and I was intrigued by what she was learning there. And I thought, she's in seminary? I'm going to go to seminary. I was a little bit competitive. And so I, I wound up there um, kind of on a search, like, who is Jesus, and why did he come to me, and what is this all about? And that was the beginning of how I wound up uh, being ordained in the United Methodist Church. And... Um, it's a long, strange trip, but it's been a really beautiful trip. Wow, that's that's quite a story. The book is, of course, uh, the focus of trying to rejuvenate uh, churches in general. And the uh, traditional churches are, we all know, in decline. Yet in America, politically, the traditional, uh, if you want to call it conservative religion, seems to have the biggest amount of weight uh, in the political sphere. How do you account for that? That is a tough question to answer. I think that the fundamentalist and or evangelical, they're not the same, but some mix of the fundamentalists and evangelicals have chosen to align themselves with the political right um, starting, gosh, I don't know, 20 years ago? Um, or so, and have found it to be politically expedient to do that. I think it's a mistake because I think we have exactly what's in front of us right now, where people whose deepest values include honesty, authenticity, integrity, care for the stranger, love of the downtrodden, aligned with a political party, that is standing behind uh, a process that lacks integrity, lacks authenticity, lacks kindness, lacks love for the stranger, wants to erect walls, calls people's names, tweets and bullies, and does not lead in a unified way, but in fact uh, leads from fear. I think that's a problem, and I think that the evangelical and fundamentalist folks that are aligned with Trump at this time and aligned with the GOP are going to come to a time where they find themselves deeply regretful for the ways in which they have jettisoned some of their deeper values for uh, a seemingly political solution to what are ultimately ethical problems. I think they've traded in ethics for politics. It has been said, too, on the political spectrum that for some reason many people wind up being single-issue religious people, usually around abortion. And, of course, religion is much broader than that. All of the, all the religions are. They are. It's so true. And I, I think, you know, gosh, I think once again it's an issue of us having lost our vision um, that the churches themselves have ceded ethical and spiritual authority to political leaders, 
people with bigger voices or bigger platforms. We've ceded our authority. And so we've given over our willingness to speak for ourselves and to let Jesus guide us or whatever your, you know, the Ten Commandments, whatever your particular spiritual values are, that those have been ceded in favor of larger, louder voices and that there have been wedge issues that have been um, crafted to separate us one from another. And I think that's a, a regretful state of affairs. I would love to blame somebody else for that. I would love to blame Trump. I would love to blame, you know, whoever. But if we're really going to operate with agency, which is what my book is about, dare to dream like Jesus, use your authority, use your agency. If we're going to use our agency, we have to step up and say, we have ethics, we have a vision, and we will lead from our vision. Instead of being against somebody or something else, what do we stand for? That's where the church has lost its voice, and that's the place that we can step into. Well, you've been traveling all around the country. I'm talking to you right now in Atlanta. Uh, you live in Wyoming. You do your work everywhere in America. I do. And right now, our discussion has been kind of theoretical, taking churches in decline and turning them around. Can you give us some examples of churches that have turned around that are really quite dynamic? Is that happening? Yeah, it really is happening. Let me give you one of my favorite examples. Um, this is a colleague of mine and now one of the faculty in my program. He's retired United Methodist minister named Steve Trout. And he pastored in Los Alamos, New Mexico, which has one of the highest populations of PhDs in the country because of the Los Alamos National Lab. And where is this? Los Alamos, New Mexico. Oh, Los Alamos, yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. so one of the highest populations or concentrations mm -hmm. of PhDs and a very high mm -hmm. income level. There were pockets of hunger in that community, hidden pockets of hunger. And Steve, through the process of creating a culture of renewal, our three-year process, took his congregation, first his own thinking, and then his congregation through a church-oriented vision, like we're gonna have a better church, basically a church improvement plan. We're gonna have a better church, we're gonna have better worship, we're gonna have better small groups, we're gonna have more people attend, to a community vision, which was, we can help the people in our community live bigger lives or better lives. And he took it from there all the way to what I call a kingdom vision, which is a hunger to end hunger. And his congregation spearheaded an effort in the entire county to make sure that nobody in Los Alamos, New Mexico went hungry. The way they did it is that they gathered a uh, 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 momentum through preaching and Bible studies and interfaith meetings to get people on board with this vision and then carry it out. They gathered together all the agencies that were working to feed people in hunger, and they began to coordinate their efforts. Out of that process, they not only began to identify where the gaps were in making sure that nobody went hungry, but they also identified other gaps. Who are the people without enough warm clothing in the winter? Los Alamos, New Mexico gets a winter. So who are the people without clothing, without uh, coats, warm coats in the winter? Um, who are the young people that don't uh, have the access to education that some of the PhD uh, kids had? And they began to identify all sorts of gaps in their community and to fill those gaps one by one. 
as a result of the process that they were engaging in the community, the church itself began to thrive. They began to develop new visions internally, ways they could do worship better, ways they could connect with each other better. One of the distinctives about creating a culture of renewal and dream like Jesus is that instead of the church being the recipient of the vision, we're going to have a better church, the church becomes the agent of the vision. And it asks, how could our community thrive if we were really being the church? If we were doing everything we say we believe and everything we could, how could our community thrive? So we look first to see how are the communities doing because the churches are involved with this. Uh, another community uh, in, again, in New Mexico that we worked with, uh, Roswell, New Mexico, began to have a big vision that people would thrive. They noticed people coming through from all parts of the county looking for a handout. Every church pastor knows this, the, the stream of humanity that flows through looking for help, looking for a job, looking for 40 bucks to, to stave off a uh, electricity being turned off in their house. They decided it wasn't going to be enough to just feed people. They wanted to do something more. They wanted to help people thrive in their own lives. And so as they began to share this vision, all kinds of <laughs> miraculous things began to drop into their laps in the church. Uh, a home was donated to the church. Uh, a school said they wanted to move in and rent space. Um, something else big happened. Oh, a bank said, we need to give some money away. Could we contribute to your scholarship uh, process? Mm. Uh, just amazing things began to happen. Well, out of this huge influx of resources that the church received, it was now able to turn around and develop processes and programs for the community itself so that people could begin to I was going to say pull themselves up by their bootstraps, but it's not really that. It's more that they could begin to develop a higher consciousness about who they were, develop a new self perspective, a new vision of themselves so that they weren't getting handouts, but they were working hand in hand, you know, with themselves, with God, with the church to craft more fulfilling lives where there was a space for resources, uh, not only to be put in, but, you know, like a space for them. I don't know how to say this, but a, a, a bigger sense of themselves in their lives so that when they received help, it could become part of a sustainability in their life instead of running through handouts or running through donations. Do you know what I'm saying? I do indeed. As a matter of fact, one of the things in my field, public media and the arts, is what we've always said, which is we don't have the money, but if we have the vision, the money will follow. The resources will follow, and that's really the example you made in, that's it. at the level of a church, which is even more significant. Yeah, that's it, exactly. And we not only work with individual churches and individual pastors, we work with entire regions of the church and seeing turnarounds happen as the region of the church itself gets a sense of who they really are and what they can be and what they bring to a community. So that's really what we're about is helping helping faith leaders at whatever level, develop a larger sense of the contribution they make to the world. You've written a number of books, and uh, let me just, as we close, touch on uh, one of your other books about uh, the Green Church. Now, that's pretty interesting. Um, I assume we don't mean uh, a can of paint. <laughs> I, as I assume we mean ecologically uh, doing the right thing. Yeah, we do. Yeah. You know, my background when I was in college was environmental studies. 
And it was one of the first environmental studies, interdisciplinary programs in the country at the University of Vermont. And so this whole idea of understanding life in ecological terms, where all these different factors function together to make the whole, to have integrity in the whole. That's been a part of my life ever since college. And I wanted to bring that kind of awareness to the church. Um, Also, I was trained by Al Gore to be one of uh, the thousand, initially a thousand presenters who would present his slideshow version of An Inconvenient Truth. So I learned a lot about the science behind climate change, and I had already done acid rain studies uh, in my college days. I had worked for the state of Vermont on acid rain studies. I wanted to bring all that scientific knowledge um, together with the scriptural wisdom so that we could really look again at what the Bible says about Uh, taking care of the earth and what science says about how we're doing at it so that we could have a both and and um, really understand that science and religion are not opposed, not in my book, not in my mind, um, but that they work together and together that creates a sustainable kind of knowledge and wisdom and ethos. Uh, again, back to that ethical perspective of taking care of the earth. It's 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 a religious dictum. It's an imperative. Whether you're Jewish, here's what I found out. Whether you're Jewish, whether you're Muslim, whether you're Christian, whether you're Buddhist uh, and Hindu, all of those major, and of course, the indigenous religions, all those religions have those values woven in to the very core of their teachings. And that was the most delightful part for me is to realize, aha, here's something that brings us together. Not only do we live on one earth, but all of our value systems talk about the importance of taking care of the earth. So yeah, that's what I did. Well, Rebecca Simon Peter, you're a very interesting lady with a big head of steam pointed in uh, the right direction, trying to make a real change where change clearly has to happen if we're going to uh, get back to the point of growing our churches, our temples, our synagogues. So thank you for being with us here on Beliefs. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Professor. I appreciate the opportunity. Our guest was Reverend Rebecca Simon Peter, discussing her book, Dream Like Jesus. The conversation continues on our Facebook page and we tweet at Beliefs Podcast. If you like our program, come review us on iTunes. Beliefs is brought to you with the support of the Bernard L. Schwartz Center for Media, Public Policy, and Education at the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University. Jay Woodward is our producer. The theme music is by Edward Billis. I'm Bill Baker. Thank you for listening.